Thank you so much, uh, one and all, for gathering. Mothers, grandmothers, maybe even some dads and grandpas. We've got James coming from outside of Chicago. Gave us a great prayer. So grateful that you all joined us today from, from the four corners of America. We have East Coast and West Coast and everything in between. Happy springtime. I don't know about you. Let's see that first slide, but it is... Uh, Cherry blossom season in Washington, D.C. Our city is just a flame with fire of the whites and the uh, the pinks. We call them popcorn popping on the apricot tree. So this first slide here, this was just taken a few years ago, but every single year, this is what our front yard looks like. And this was um, taken, this is four out of our five kids in front of the Thomas Jefferson uh, Memorial. And that is ex especially where uh, the cherry blossoms are just, you know, encircling this beautiful area down in Washington, D.C. Um, I don't know if any of you are coming up to, to spring break with your children or grandchildren, but we have some wonderful um, helps and ideas for Liberty Trips. And Z will take us through that at the end of class today uh, to, to see how you can go online and look at some of these Liberty Trips that you could take in your very state. You know, we love our kids. Obviously we love our kids and our grandchildren. We're concerned about them. This is why we get on and we're studying, you know, these concepts, these principles and these stories and miracles of America so we can pass them on down to the children so they can rise up in the children and uh, the rising generation so they can be a part of the solution and not the problem. We're seeing so many examples right now, just most recently in Nashville of just young tortured souls you know, turning to violence and homicide and, and it's worrisome, you know, that these young children are, have been taught for uh, a long time <laughs> in the school systems and the universities and on social media that their identity is rooted in their sexual identity or their pronouns and, and it's a difficult path to walk. I'm so encouraged to see all the revivals, spontaneous revivals popping up around the country. I just saw a revival in New York City. Boy, I'm really encouraged when a, uh, a revival can occur on the streets of New York City. And uh, we know that when young people, especially all people, but when young people find God and God gets in their heart and they begin to talk to him and pray to him, and study him, and follow him, it changes their lives. And there is no one better to lead them to God than to you, mother, father, grandmother, grandfather. And uh, I, I'm so grateful that we can gather together each week in, in this cottage meeting online setting with Moms for America. I have been a part of Moms for America for over a decade. And Laura and Z uh, is on the a team as well. And they're behind the scenes doing all the moderating and and uh, with the chat and, and the PowerPoints and, and so much more. Grateful to have them here. Z is from Colorado and Laura is from California. And I live in the Washington DC area, just about 15 minutes from the White House. Now we are in our Healing of America 16 week seminar. We are in the third of the 16 weeks. We're on seminar book number one, God's Hand in Building of America. We're in section three this week, the war that would set them free. Last week, we talked about the men and women that were raised up for this very purpose. We specifically talked about Samuel Adams, the father of the American Revolution that he became known as, and then the genius of Thomas Jefferson to write uh, the Declaration of Independence. And then the week before, we talked about little Joan of Arc. Did anyone watch that uh, uh, Joan of Arc BYU movie? Uh, it's about an hour long. It's a wonderful film to watch with your children. It's inspirational. I promise you they'll like it and, and they will stay engaged. And then uh, we, we discussed Christopher Columbus. I don't know if you have had a chance to watch that monumental um, show with Kirk Cameron. It was produced in 2012 and um, it's wonderful because he gives the history and he takes you to Plymouth. Kirk Cameron was just honored this weekend through Moms for America in Branson, Missouri. And he spoke and he gave his stories fascinating and it's inspirational. And he um, actually texted our president, Kimberly Fletcher, and he said, I have found the cottage meeting material and I'm devour devouring it. 
He said, it is fire. And so Kirk Cameron is studying what we are studying and it is touching his heart. Hopefully it's touching your heart as well. There's a, a wonderful movie, movie. I just have to, when there's good movies, because most movies are garbage. And so I always love a good recommendation. Uh, there's one that's coming out in the theaters next week, March 31st, and it's from the makers of The Chosen. It's called His Only Son. And it retells the story of Abraham and Isaac and their three-day journey to the altar, so to speak, how uh, Abraham was willing to sacrifice he and Sarah's only son. And I think it probably mirrors the Easter image or the Easter uh, message of, uh, you know, God being willing to sacrifice his only begotten son for us at this Easter time as that story is most uh, preeminent in our hearts as we move into this beautiful renewal and resurrection season of, of the Easter. And so just a few recommendations. So we are on uh, section three of seminar one. Now, uh, next week we'll, we'll be on the last section and then we will be into seminar two, which is the constitution. So you will want to get, hopefully you have purchased all these four seminar booklets now. So if you don't have booklet two, order it today. I think you can get all four for $50 on our website, but I recommend getting those uh, books now because we will be moving into seminar uh, two here shortly. And remember you have homework every week, it's fill in the blank, you learn best, you retain things better if you have a multi-sensory experience of listening, of hearing, of seeing, of feeling. So, and also writing cursive because you remember the emotional connection and the content better if you use cursive. Isn't that interesting? They don't teach cursive anymore in school, which is a shame. Okay, so let's turn to section 1.3, the war that set them free. Look, God is willing to use me and to use you if we're just willing to get on his wall and say, Lord, here am I, send me. And this is the kind of men and women we're going to study today. These men and women that said, Lord, here am I, send me. What would you have me do? Okay, so we know that after the founding fathers made the decision to declare their independence in 1776, they had to formulate a structure of government that would be able to unite these little 13 fractured colonies. So um, a month after their uh, independence, Declaration of Independence, a committee was appointed to draft the Articles of Confederation. Does that sound familiar to you? Little did the founders know that it was really going to take 11 years before they were able, were going to be able to put together a sound constitution for a free and prosperous people. They had so much to learn in 1776. Let's see that first slide, Laura, and then we'll go on to the second slide. So here we are, the war that set them free, seminar war one, section three. Yes. And then let's go on to the next slide after that as well. Uh, Thomas Jefferson would say during this time period, we had never been permitted to exercise self-government. So when forced to assume it, we were novices in the science. <laughs> okay, so he knew, well, we're just kids here. We're just trying to figure out how to unite, uh, you know, uh, these colonies. And so the first draft of the Article of Confederation came out shortly after the uh, Declaration of Independence by John Dickinson, a founder, signer um, from Pennsylvania. But uh, the body of uh, men were shocked because it was too much like that strong central government that they were just broken away from, uh, the British government. And so for 16 months, uh, they debated uh, what was going to be the best way to govern these colonies. So 16 months uh, later, November 15th, 1777, they came up with a central government, a draft, which would make the central government extremely weak and the new state vigorously independent. The weaknesses of this Article of Confederation almost is what caused the US to lose the Revolutionary War because there was no executive um, authority in the Articles of Confederation. There was no federal judicial system. Now the colonists had no experience with the courts because the king in England had always ran the courts. And also in the Article of Confederation, there was no power by the uh, government to be able to tax the states. 
and they had no way of enforcing the states to pay their allocated money to, to begin to pay for the war, the troops. And, and the government had no way to enforce any of its decrees. They just had to hope that the states would cooperate, uh, you know, with some of their edicts and, and so forth. And so Congress clearly had not yet found the balanced center of the political spectrum, which Jefferson said was to be so essential. Let's see that next slide. The Articles of Confederation was too close to anarchy. So here's the Article of Confederation, that first little part. Let's see that next slide, Laura, where it shows uh, kind of that continuum of um, ruler's law on one end. And that's mostly throughout history, how governments have been run, you know, where there's kings and monarchs, that's where power is in the hands of just a few people. And even that's where socialism and communism and Marxism, all the isms would fall on that tyranny ruler's law spectrum. But you can see the article, articles of confederation leaned more towards anarchy with not enough control. When you have anarchy, you have mob rule and, and really a true democracy that is run completely by the people leans to be a, 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 a anarchist as well. That, that's what you saw during the French Revolution uh, where there's no law, libertarian leans to anarchy. So what the founders were trying to find was that balanced center, that people's law. This was what Moses had found uh, in, in you know, anciently and what the Anglo-Saxons had found, government kind of in that balanced center where there's enough, there's enough regulation and oversight by the government, but the, the voice of the people still uh, is, is able to be heard. It's, it's the right balance of government. So in spite of its weaknesses, it's interesting to note that the Articles of Confederation contain some valuable principles. In fact, about 50 major provisions would later be pulled into and used into the constitution that would be uh, written in 1787. And so despite the weak article, Articles of Confederation, the war was on. Having declared their independence from Britain, the Americans had to sustain this uh, war by force of arms. It was a frustrating eight years, re the Revolutionary War was. The Americans were caught without a well-structured system, a strong uh, central government to run the war that we talked about already with this weak Article of Confederation. But they were also facing the most powerful empire at that time in history on the earth, the British, uh, the British government with the largest army and the most powerful navy in the world. And we had neither, we did not have a trained army or a navy whatsoever. And our little government had no money with which to finance this eight year revolutionary war. So there was still also in America, a strong loyalist sentiment of uh, a Tory element throughout America who were still bitterly opposed to the war and, and, and actually fought with the British. Now, I said uh, last week, and I've said before, it was about 3% of the 3 million people that lived in America during this time period that actually fought uh, uh, for uh, freedom. And 3% of the population fought, they were Tories, uh, fought for the British government, even though they're living in America. And then about 94% were just ambivalent, apathetic. But as a whole, it was about a third, a third, and a third. A third were sympathetic to England. A third were sympathetic to the colonists, independence. And the third were apathetic. But only a small fraction of those thirds actually rose up and did something, actually fought for their beliefs. And I think to me that shows that God only needs a small number of people to be engaged to make a difference. I mean, just think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just give me 10 people and I will save your city, he said. By small and simple means, he tells us, this is how he brings about his purposes. So if we actually had 3% of 320 million people in America today rising up and actually doing something to fight for our freedom, freedom and preserve what our founders gave us. We could, you know, following the pattern of the numbers during the Revolutionary War, we could save America. <laughs> we could turn it around. That would be about 9.6 million people today. Do you think we have 9.6 million people that are willing to stand up 
and do what it takes to fight for America? I think we do. <laughs> Those are encouraging numbers to me. And so um, the assistance of France, interesting enough, at, during this time period of 17, really 75 is when they, I think they say the war began when that first shot around the world that Lexington and Concord was, was had until about 1783 is when the war was fought. The assistance of France in providing supplies uh, was insignificant. We could have used their help a little earlier on uh, as far as with help with troops and naval support. It really wasn't until that last battle at Yorktown that we'll talk about in just a minute, did they really come through with the supplies and naval ships. But maybe that's just when we needed them to come through. And once again, they were able to come through because you know, 350 years earlier, little Joan of Arc rose up and did what, what God had asked her to do to save her little fledgling uh, nation when it was under attack by the English in 1425. So we talked about last week how 1776 was a difficult year for our founding nation, our founding fathers and mothers. And it was difficult in the beginning of 1776, but the latter part of that year, uh, uh, the earlier part didn't even compare to what they were going to have to experience in the latter part of 1776 with the stream of disasters that struck the American forces during that latter part of 1776. So during the summer of 1776, after independence in uh, August, the British mobilized under General William Howe, the largest army that had ever been assembled in North America. And they also brought the largest fleet of ships ever seen in the Western Hemisphere. And um, the battle for New York went very badly in the summer of 1776. So without a, a Navy, Washington could do little more than put up a token resistance against the British. And the British actually, let's see that next slide, drove uh, them from Long Island and, and they were forced so here's uh, George Washington's little ragtag army of young boys and uh, older farmers, and none of them were trained. And then let's see the next slide. So this uh, first battle in New York uh, is where a wonderful miracle occurred, though. It's called the miracle of the fog. So all the troops were trapped on the shores of Brooklyn, and there were 20,000 soldiers in New York at this time with 400 ships coming up that uh, river there. And Washington re re retreated to the East River to evacuate. There were ferocious winds that were hooping up, so it kept the British ships at bay and, and, and the soldiers. And so they were just going to wait until the next morning to come and attack uh, Washington's troops. George Washington did something um, unthinkable uh, that summer um, on Long Island when they were trapped at night. He shuttled 900 troops across the East River. They set decoy fires. So the British seeing them, uh, you know, up upstream assumed that they had camped for the night as well. And then the miracle occurred. They fog rolled in and George Washington would say the thinker of providence blinded the eyes of our enemies that night. So when the British woke up the next morning, all of George Washington's troops were gone and across the river. So it's a wonderful story miracle of the fog that I've told my kids for years. So morale was really low at this time though because the troops the, uh, and the army was chronically short of supplies and ammunition and food and George Washington knew they had to have a win. It was towards the end of 1776 and it was Christmas time and the enlistments in the army were going to end December 31st. George Washington would say it is either victory or death. We either have to have the victory or we're not going to make it. And so it's a wonderful story. Let's see that next slide of Washington crossing. I don't know if you've ever heard of Washington. I'm sure you've heard of Washington crossing the Delaware on Christmas night, but Washington crossings is actually a state and national park on both sides of Pennsylvania and um, New Jersey. And the Delaware River, 
I know the Delaware River goes through Delaware, but it also goes through uh, Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And on Christmas night, George Washington uh, shuttled 2,400 troops across the Delaware to the other side of New Jersey. And they marched that morning 10 miles in a blizzard and caught the 1,500 Haitian troops, which were hired German troops, the English that the English had sent over to fight this war, caught them by surprise. Some people will say those Haitian troops were hung over because they had been drinking Christmas night. And so they were a little out of it that morning. When you actually go to Washington crossings, there's it's a state park and they have a visitor center. And they they won't say that the troops were hung over, but I've heard that on multiple times. That's how they were kind of able to get uh, to pounce on these um, Haitian 1500 troops and to win <laughs> this battle for Trenton, New Jersey. This was the first significant victory uh, for Washington uh, of the Revolutionary War. And because of it, he was able to convince his troops to stay on with him. And they would go on to take Princeton. This time period from uh, December 25th to about January 6th of 1777 was known as the 10 crucial days where we had to have some victories or the troops certainly would have deserted Washington. Um, this is such a, let's see the next few slides. Put this on your bucket list, take your children to Washington crossings. There's a beautiful visitor center there. This is my little girl a few years ago with the Delaware right behind us. New Jersey's on the other side. We're standing on the Pennsylvania side. She's standing in front of the McConkie Ferry Inn where uh, George Washington ate his last meal that Christmas night before he went across uh, the river. And let's see the next slide. And then they had big, uh, a big boat barn of the ships are a little bit bigger than that historical picture that is uh, shown and in in you can find the original at um, the Met Museum in New York City. They're great big um, ships. These are the actual size. Did you know every Christmas day at noon, they reenact Washington crossing the Delaware on Christmas it's during the day. And I've always wanted to take my kids there, but I can't convince anyone to leave their treasures and presents and their jammies and uh, drive up the street. It's about an hour and a half from where I live in the Washington DC area to Washington Crossing. But and there's 13 historical buildings on at Washington Crossings. You can take your bikes up and there's paths that will take you to the uh, Thompson Neely Farm there where uh, the troops uh, and officers uh, stayed for, for a few week period of time as they were uh, making the plans uh, to take Trenton. So it's a wonderful place, Washington Crossing. Put that on your bucket list. You know, um, let's see the next slide. George Washington, he left a life that he loved uh, at Mount Vernon on the banks of the Potomac River. When I, there, was, there was a picture of Martha there. There's a little picture of Martha there, but I had a bigger picture. But he left his Martha and he left his um, uh, Mount Vernon uh, to be a part of this eight year frustrating war. You know, he was a prominent man, a wealthy man. He had uh, five different estates on, on this property that he had inherited. And he would lead these troops and Martha often would go be with him during the winter months when the troops were encamped for the winter. It was hard for both sides to fight during the winter months. She would travel to be with him during those lonely, uh, dark, cold months, particularly she was valuable in Valley Forge the next year in 1777 when it was known at Valley Forge to be one of the darkest, most difficult times of the Revolutionary War. She was there, she would organize little mills for the staff and entertain uh, guests or officers that would flow through. She would actually mend the soldiers' clothes. She would knit socks. She would go out amongst the troops and provide comfort and good cheer in this dismal situation. And, you know, and I think it, that's really the role of a woman is to do that when things are looking rough, particularly when our men are having to carry a heavy load, we uphold them so they can uphold the, the, the troops, so to speak. And um, so yeah, let's, let's see the next slide there. 
So let's let's go to Valley Forge. Uh, Valley Forge. Oh, there's Mar. Oh, there's beloved Martha. Um, I love Martha so. <laughs> let's see the next slide there. So Valley Valley Forge was a year later in late 1777. Now the British not only had uh, a taken control of New York, but now they had um, occupied Philadelphia. And so the Continental Congress fled out of Philadelphia where they were being uh, housed uh, to York, Pennsylvania. So the troops were going to encamp in, uh, in this Valley Forge area. It's about a 26 mile area, Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, where they would recoup from the year's battle. And it was a, a dismal, miserable uh, time. Over 2,000 men died just from disease and malnourishment during that cold winter. And there was about 12,000 soldiers there at Valley Forge. 2,000 would have died. They were there for six months. Um, and this is the time period where you, I wish I had put that picture up of George Washington praying, where oftentimes he was found praying in the woods uh, in Valley Forge. And, and the farmers that lived on this land would say it was not unusual to go into the woods and to see their great General Washington. There was a, a man by the name of Isaac Potts and he was a Quaker, so he was against the war. But he said, he went into the woods one time and he saw General Washington praying and he said, such a prayer I have never heard from the lips of a man beseeching the divine, the divine aid. And he said, I never thought there could be a soldier and a Christian because Potts was firmly against the war. But he said, this act of seeing this man petitioning God convinced him that the cause, this cause was of God and that America would prevail at this time period. So who would show up at this time at Valley Forge was was like an angel really he probably didn't look like an angel or speak like an angel his name was uh he was a prussian officer named baron von steuben and he was like a drill sergeant and over the course of those six months he unified that army and he trained them up and he um taught them <laughs> the ways of war and 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 through his training it, it became a turning point interesting enough that the time, the six months that they survived uh, Valley Forge, that uh, from there on out, there was a, a different spirit that the troops had. And I also think it was probably the spirit of God moving upon the hearts of those men as uh, General Washington petitioned regularly and often in the woods for his troops. By the time the troops left, Valley Forge was the fourth largest city in America at that time. Let's see some of those slides uh, of Valley Forge. Valley Forge is another wonderful place to take 26 miles. We take our bikes up there and we bike these paths. There's, a, um, there's all kind of monuments and redoubts and huts and churches and uh, existing houses that exist you know, existed. I'll show you the Potts Farm in just a moment. That's Washington Arch behind me. There's Captain Von Steubing, a wonderful statue of him. Uh, let's see the next slide. And then there is, I think this is, this is the Hut City where the troops stayed uh, that cold winter. And you can go inside and see what the hut actually looks like. And then let's see the last slide there, which is, oh, there's a magnificent Washington Memorial Church. And there's a statue to all the women of this nation and their unborn or their, their, or their children that they lost. It so touched me, uh, that little mama. I have lost two little babes myself and I know what it feels like to cry at the uh, gravesite of a child. And so it just touched me and that is at Valley Forge. And this is the Isaac Potts farmhouse. Uh, where General Washington actually used as a headquarters for uh, a, a short time at Valley Forge. It's a wonderful day to take your bike and bike those 26 miles. If you have an electric bike, uh, that would be really good because it is a little hilly and you can actually take a tour bus and there's a beautiful new visitor center at Valley Forge, but you really feel the spirit of what transpired there. An interesting story too, during this time period in Valley Forge one day, George Washington came out of his room and there was a, a soldier there by the name of 
what's his name? Sherman. Sherman. Here we go. It is Anthony Sherman. Sherman Anthony. And he told, he said, I just had a vision. And he told this soldier, I'm going to tell you what it's about, but don't ever tell anyone about it until I have died. And George Washington said, a beautiful being, an angel, an, an angelic being appeared to me and showed me the three periods of the history of this land. He showed me now this revolutionary war that we would win it. And then a period probably the probably that was reflective of the Civil War. And then I believe he showed him a period of modern times and that we would prevail through it. And he came out and he told this uh, Sherman Anthony this, this vision and said not to tell. And Sherman Anthony never told anyone this vision until 1859 when he was an old man. And this vision is actually recorded in the Library of Congress. And so uh, there's a little 27 minute YouTube video by Trey Smith that I've watched before. And I think it's interesting. He kind of explains it. And there's, if you Google uh, George Washington's prophecy on America, it, it will come up. And some people will debunk it and poo poo and say it didn't exist. But I almost have to think George Washington had to have had some sort of experience like that for him to stay the course when even his officers, it was said, wanted to desert him at this time in Valley Forge when it was so grim. And so imagine if God gave you that kind of vision, you would be fearless. You would, you would, you know, square your shoulders to the task because you know that God in heaven had your back and you were going to prevail. So that is an interesting um, vision there that George Washington and this man in 1859, some what 60, 70, 80 years later shared and is documented in the Library of Congress today. So the war was going to rage on for the next four years, George Washington's miraculous victory and in 1781, uh, General, the British General Cornwallis had two encounters with Washington in which Cornwallis on the British side suffered great losses. And, uh, and therefore Washington raced to Yorktown, um, or, or actually Cornwallis raced to Yorktown because he hoped to have the availability. Yorktown is on the water there. I lived just about two miles from Yorktown a few years ago in the colonial Williamsburg area. Jamestown is about two miles from Williamsburg and Yorktown on the other side is about another two miles in the opposite direction. So I, we lived in colonial Williamsburg. So we went to Jamestown and Yorktown often. There's beautiful visitor centers and reenactments of the camps and the ships. And so Yorktown was on the water. So the British uh, General Cornwallis hoped to get to the uh, Yorktown where the British uh, uh, Navy could come and rescue his troops. But however, the French warships finally arrived and damaged the British fleet so badly that the, the British Navy had to go back to New York, which they occupied. And Washington saw this as his great opportunity. He had the French ships uh, cover the seacoast and he marched his troops overland to surround uh, the British troops at Yorktown and there Cornwallis would surrender in 1780. One, the last battle of the Revolutionary War, Yorktown. So King George III still tried to get the troops to fight and continue the war. But after Yorktown, neither the English parliament or the English people had the heart for it. To be quite honest with you, we simply won because we would not give up. In, the, in this book, Promises of the Constitution, you'll hear me talk a lot about it. It's just small little one-page vignettes of all these little stories I told you. You can find all these stories in like one and a half page vignettes and read them to your children. But in the Promises of the Constitution, it says America's will to win this war was her greatest strength. The Americans fought for their freedom, their homes, their wives, their children, and their right to govern themselves. They were independent, rugged individuals infused with the spirit of national pride and the natural justice of God. Just as David stood against the champions of the Philippines, there's a battle of York. I'm sure they're signing the surrender there, uh, um, Cornwallis did. 
just as we were kind of like little David against Goliath, their faith in the rightness of their cause led them to believe that God would deliver them. The Americans were stronger than they actually appeared internally. They were stronger. It reminds me so much of today. If we will just not give up on our children and our posterity and this government and this country, we will win. God tells us. We've had our own little vision in the scriptures. He tells us he will heal our lands. God will prevail in the end. We know he will. And so, you know, George Washington knew that. And we need to know this so we can instill this in our rising generation. I love, let's see, maybe full screen of me. Actually, let's see the next slide. I think I have um, uh, the real George Washington is a wonderful book. So many of the stories that we read today come from this real George Washington. I'll also show you this slide in just a moment. But um, so what, what George Washington did is he, so the war really ended in 1781, but it took a, about a year and a half for the king to actually acknowledge the independence and to send a treaty um, saying that they had surrendered. And so this treaty came in, 1783, and uh, Washington read it to his troops, and it was on the actual eighth anniversary of um, the Battle of Lexington and Concord, September 3rd, 1783. Actually, I think that battle was in the spring, but it was in 1783, eight years from the date the, the war had started. So Washington waited until the very last regiment of British troops uh, packed up and left and departed out of New York before he came into New York City in December of 1783. And um, let's go back to that uh, uh, Francis Tavern. The, oh yeah, so the, here's, and let's go back one. Uh, let's go back. We're gonna go back to that one more. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. This is called Francis Tavern. Now this is the oldest surviving building in New York City. And this is where Washington would bid farewell to his troops that evening in December of 1783, that Francis Tavern hosted a dinner for uh, George Washington and his troops. It is actually a restaurant today and on the second floor in New York City. It's down kind of near the Wall Street area. It's on uh, uh, Pearl Street and, and Broad Street. And you can eat there. It's kind of like colonial style. I, I put that on your bucket list to eat at Francis's Tavern and then go up to that second floor to the room actually where George Washington had dinner on the second floor. And it's a museum today. But there Washington and his officers uh, ate their last meal together after being together. Imagine some of them eight years possibly. And he said, let's see that next slide. He said, with a heart full of love and gratitude, I now take leave of you. I most devoutly wish that your latter years may be as prosperous and happy as your former ones have been glorious and honorable. And then um, he took the time to take each officer by his hand and say something to them as he um, uh, bid them farewell. And an eyewitness to the event there that evening said he had never seen such a scene of sorrow and weeping before. I mean, just imagine the, the feelings that, that they must have experienced knowing that they had been really through hell and back with this great leader. And now he was bidding farewell, maybe never to see them again. And then he would take his little horse and go on to the temporary capital of America, Annapolis, Maryland, where he resigned his commission as commander in chief uh, uh, to the Continental Army. And there he, um, Annapolis is just about a half an hour drive from me. And I have been to that state house and there's a wonderful plaque that depicts the scene when he spoke to the, con the, to the Congress. And he said, um, my eyesight, I have grown old in your service. And so he pulled out his little specs as he read his remarks and he spoke of God and the divine hand of providence that had directed the events to getting them to where they were now. And he spoke of his appreciation for his officers. And again, emotions welled up and he could barely speak as his voice faltered. And um, all those that were there that day, it was said hardly a member of Congress uh, did, was there that did not drop tears. 
And so uh, another emotional scene with the great George Washington, obviously you can tell, I, I feel, I brought, I brought George, can you see him? He's on my shoulder today, but I feel, I feel great affection for George Washington uh, and, and his wife, Martha, because I am, I am convinced he could not have done what he did without Martha, without her love and support. So then he would go on to Mount Vernon uh, and spend that Christmas, 1783 at Mount Vernon. That's the best place to be at Christmas time, Mount Vernon. They decorate it all up and you can just envision him coming through the doors in 1783 to be reunited uh, with Martha. Okay, so let's see the next slide. I think that takes us to the real George Washington slide. Oh, oh, um, the Patriots Court. Can I just give you a little hint? Oh, I need my hanky because now my nose is just a flowing uh, here with my tears. But there is a wonderful tour group called Patriot Tours in New York City. Her name is Karen Q. If you just Google it, sorry, I don't have the, the website there. Just Google Patriot Tours New York City. And she gives tours almost every day at St. Paul's Church. And she gives a wonderful two-hour tour of the Revolutionary War walking tour. And you walk these sites to uh, Francis Tavern and Liberty Pole where um, protests were held at that time in the Wall Street area and, and tells the stories of the Sons of Liberty uh, during this time period. And um, it's they're just magnificent. So if you go to New York City, go see a Broadway show, but definitely go take one of these tours from Patriot Tours down in lower Manhattan. And the woman who gives the tours, she dresses in period. She's a true patriot. I just love her. God bless her. You wonder sometimes when you go to New York City if there are any patriots left in that crazy city. But um, anyway, it's just, just, a, just, just a suggestion, just a bucket list. Okay, so here we go. In June after the war, what now? At, in June of 1783, as the Revolutionary War was coming to a close, Thomas Jefferson felt compelled to make a monumental decision. He would compose the fourth and the fifth and final draft of a system of sound government in Virginia. And he was going to take it with him because he was going to be gone on assignment as a minister to France, representing our new American country to kind of drum up goodwill for this new country. And, and there he was going to publish this, um, this draft on the sound system of government. Now he was very close friends with uh, James Madison, who was going to receive, uh, you know, books and notes and recommendations from Jefferson in Europe on how to write the constitution. So James Madison, and we're gonna talk about him next week when we talk about the constitutional convention, but Jefferson was helping him from across the ocean by sending him you know, these copies and, and books and ideas and, and for what James Madison was going to spearhead with writing the constitution. They had really it, uh, had found, uh, J John Adams had, and John Adams would later call it the, the divine science of natural law of sound government. Jefferson and Adams and these founders had discerned that as they studied the first five books of scripture, as they studied those documents of freedom, the Magna Carta, the petition of writs that had come from the English people. And, and certainly as they studied the Anglo-Saxon, but now they're wondering if there was a natural economic, natural laws of economic godly laws that would produce a, um, a dynamic and prosperous economy that gave everyone a high standard of living, not just a few, because up until this point in history, it was pretty much the haves and the have nots, right? Class systems. So in 1776, just as this free people in modern times was coming into existence here in America, an economist, uh, in Scotland, who was actually a friend of Benjamin Franklin when Benjamin Franklin was over in France as a, a minister and ambassador to America during um, the Re Revolutionary War. He, Benjamin Franklin had met this man, uh, a Scottish economist by the name of Adam Smith. And Adam Smith in 1776 wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations. Does that sound familiar? Mamas, um, did you have to study that? Maybe they don't study that anymore in the universities. For years, they would study that. That is just the, laid the foundation for this idea of a free market 
uh, economy. And so in this book, Adam Smith said that wealth is not gold or silver, thank you, but it is the essentials of life. True wealth is having uh, a, an abundance of food and clothes and having a house and transportation and communication and schools and roads and factories and well-cultivated farms. Adam Smith said, if you want to see an increase in the standard of living and prosperity uh, and goods and services, he said, then goods and services must be abundant and they must be cheap. So how was this to be achieved, he says, in The Wealth of Nation? He highlights this formula in this book that was just coming out in 1776. He talks about the need for specialized production. When, when you have specialized production, he said it increases the quality and quantity and it, it increases the standard of living because you don't have to do it all. You know, you can have people that are experts in building houses or making clothes or producing food instead of having to try and do it all like, you know, so many civilizations have done since the beginning of time. He also said that people should be able to buy and sell in a free market based on this natural law of supply and demand where people voted with their dollar if they liked something or didn't like something. This was kind of like the natural law marketing. It's, it's democratic, you know, where you were more choice, more choices, lots of choices are better. And that you actually vote by when you buy something. That's kind of how you cast your vote is by how much of something is being bought because it's a better uh, uh, product for whatever reasons. And then um, everyone should be able to improve, he said, Adam Smith, his position by being able to make a profit. Profit is good. He said profit is defined as doing whatever is necessary to make an exchange worthwhile, okay, where the buyer gets something. So that's profiting him and the seller might actually make uh, money. And, and, you know, today that some people might see, see making a profit as evil, but it's core to a, a free market economy. So the secret to this kind of operation of a free market is competition. Uh, Sam, or, um, Sam Smith, not Sam Smith, Adam Smith, <laughs> would go on to write. And competition, he said, can be painful at times, but the results are good because it produces a greater quantity uh, because there's more production and more profit and improves ultimately the quality and it's attractive to people. It lowers the price. Imagine when they went from the quill pen to the ballpoint pen. The ballpoint pen probably was quite expensive. But as more and more uh, began to be produced and made and improved upon, the price went down. And there, uh, there, a greater variety of goods and services can now begin to satisfy the different demands of the customer. Now, you know, all of this, all of what I just explained, these principles, this natural law of prosperous economies makes perfect sense to us because, you know, it just appeals to our intuitive sense because that's what we've only always known in America. But at, in the world at that time, these concepts were completely new and many people were nervous. In fact, some people are still nervous by a free market economy. And some people wanna save us from ourselves by regulating the government, regulating businesses and, and so forth. Um, a few years after Adam Smith, Wealth of Nation, let's see the next slide. Frederick Bastiat, a French economist who advocated for these same principles that Adam Smith put forth in 1776. In 1801, let's see that next slide. Frederick Bastiat in his book, The Law, it's just a simple little book, explains this, these free market principles so beautifully. Also in the 5,000 year leap book, those 28 principles that our founders used to, uh, to establish this country, Principle number 15 says that our founders understood that the highest level of prosperity would occur in our country when there was this free market economy and a minimum of government regulations. Principle 19 talks about how only a limited and carefully defined power should be given to the government and all others should be delegated to the people, retained to the states and the people to figure it out. And so you can see why a free market economy is so consistent with those principles of liberty. Just, I don't know if I've ever told you, but we've actually taught 
a 12 week class on these 28 principles. And we just take two or three principles and we break them down and we give practical application of what's going on in, in the country today and how these principles are being played out or not being played out and why we might have problems because they're not. So it's so wonderful. It's online and you can just watch those classes at any time. Maybe I'll teach that class live again next year. But um, let's see the next slide. So there, there are these wonderful children books. I actually prefer to read the children books <laughs> to understand, but it's um, called the Tuttle Twin series. And there's like 13 books and um, there's actually a little book and it's got cute little illustrations here. Here's my law book. And it teaches children the basic principles of the free market economy. So I, you could, there's 13 of these books and you can get them on their website or on the Moms for America store. And I think all of them, 13 books are like $90 or you can buy one book at a time for $10. But I think it's so good to teach kids the basics of money and finance and how our government was intended to work. Uh, like there's a book called The, the Road to Serfdom that is taken from that famous book, How Government Intervention is Bad. Maybe show me full screen just for a moment, Laura. Uh, and then there's a book called The Search for Atlas that talks about personal responsibility versus socialism, the government just controlling everything. And there's a book called The Messed Up Market. And you can see they're all got have great illustrations about entrepreneurship and, and how you have to take some risks in order um, you know, to, to succeed. And then the creature from Jekyll Island, which we'll really talk about, this is an actual book about the establishment of the Federal Reserve and how that began to really tamper with the free market principles. And so they just break that book down about the Federal Reserve. And then this uh, little miraculous pencil that talks about competition and free trade and a free market. So these are just suggestions that you might want to eventually get to help your kids. Because sometimes it's confusing to understand these economic principles. I don't particularly understand these things. So these books have been particularly helpful to me as I've tried to teach my children these things. So, you know, the greatest threat to the free market economy is government intervention. And this happens when the government is involved in fixing prices or fixing wages or controlling production or dis, uh, distribution or subsidizing production. We saw that last year when the government um, had so much regulation on children's formula. And because of that, only a few factories produced it. And, and it's because the government made it difficult. And then, you know, you had one factory shut down and then we had a crisis on our hand. So the, the, what our founders wanted, the role of government was in business and economics was to, to be just four really simple things to serve as a referee, to prevent illegal force, mafia tactics, any fraud, uh, fraudulent, maybe stocks and bonds, uh, monopolies that might occur, Limit, that would eliminate competition of smaller businesses. And, and we see, we've seen it the last few years really kick in the monopoly of big tech when uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram or were controlling the social media and censoring. And, and so um, that is a problem. They're, they try and prevent that kind of monopoly. The founders, and this is what they wanted the government to, to get involved with when it came to the economics and debauchery to, to, to be on the lookout for pornography, obscenity, drug, prostitution, and any other form of vice that might seep into the economy. I'm not so sure that the government has expanded way beyond what our founders intended. Adam Smith's tremendously successful formula could really be condensed into just these, these principles. A free market, people should have the freedom to try the freedom to buy, the freedom to sell, and the freedom to fail. Meaning, look, you don't turn to the government for bailouts if you fail. It's the risk that you take for trying, for buying, for selling, uh, for selling, and for failing. When people, let's see the next slide. When people have freedom to do this, to try to buy, to sell, to fail, they are more responsible. And there's the Tuttle Twin books. They're more responsible. When people have the freedom to take risks, they are actually more careful. And it reminds me of the example of um, football players versus rugby players. Rugby is played in Australian European countries. 
Football players, look, have, have to wear all this gear, pads, helmets to reduce the risk of injury. Whereas rugby players have, they wear no gear. But isn't it interesting to note that there's actually more injuries to NFL players because rugby players know that they, they're way more exposed and it's way more dangerous. So they are just smarter the way they play the game. There's like a personal level of responsibility when you know that, you know, you have to bear the consequences of your choices, your actions, your decisions. So you're smarter. You could, you could talk about the example of COVID, um, you know, instead of, uh, uh, you know, looking to the government to solve our COVID problems with checks or shutdowns or vaccines or a mask or whatnot. You know, if, if we knew that the government didn't have any solutions during COVID, I think we would have immediately maybe begun to make healthier choices and lifestyle and diet to raise our immune system so we can fight off some of these diseases of the world instead of eating uh, our Doritos or, or soda pops, you know, we're going to make smarter choices about how we live. And this was essentially the premise of the free market that give the people the freedom to try to buy, to sell, to fail, and they will regulate themselves. So when Adam Smith published his new book, Wealth of Nations, no country, you have to remember, no country in the world was practicing this type of free market economics. The United States was the very first nation to try it. And this is why beautiful mamas and grandmothers that's uh, uh, under living the, these under living under these free market principles within the first hundred years of our country, we went from having only 6% of the world population and 7% of the world's mass to producing over 50% of the world's wealth because these free market principles work. Thomas Jefferson would later rejoice in this when he was president. There's a wonderful quote here about the success of these natural laws that had been developed to, to develop this prosperous free enterprise economy in America. It was a, truly a monumental task to glean from history, the natural laws of freedom and security and prosperity that we've talked about just the last few minutes. And it was going to be even a greater task now to put these principles into a practical operation. And it was gonna be a slow sporadic effort. It was gonna take four years now from 1783, the end of the Revolutionary War until when the constitution uh, would be written in 1787. And this is what we're gonna study next year, the miracle of that beautiful inspired document in that constitutional convention of these men from these 13 uh, colonies, independent states, really they were, it was a miracle to even get delegates to come to Philadelphia at that uh, spring of, of 1787. And they hashed it out for four months and the miracles that transpired. We're gonna tell some great stories next week of James Madison who is known as the father of the constitution and the oldest delegate, Benjamin Franklin, the golden patriot. He was known as the father of morality during his day. Modern historians have done such a number on him, creating him into a man that he was not at all. And so we will tell these real true stories, faith stories of that constitutional convention. Um, so do your homework, fill in the blanks for next week called the perils of freedom, how God rose up these wisest of men on that Eastern seaboard to do this great thing. I hope that you have seen, you started to catch the vision in this seminar one book that God had a hand in the building of America from George Washington's ragtag army beating the largest empire in the world and all the miracles ensued during that eight year war with the fog and George Washington's courage and his visions and having the right people show up at the right time, Captain Von Steubing at Valley Forge and then the genius of Thomas Jefferson to be able to glean and compile from history these natural laws of a sound government that would go into the writing of the, the constitution a few years later. And then Adam Smith, Adam Smith, you know, his book of wealth of nations, just in the nick of time when this new government was being formed here, God inspires this man to write this book. 
God in heaven, I hope you know, I hope you feel it in your bones today that he didn't establish this first free people in modern times just to see it collapse into oblivion. That God, even today, at this 11th hour, when things look so bad, I'm not going to lie to you, I read the, I try and read the newspaper every day, and my husband says, why do you read that awful newspaper, the Washington Post? And it's hard not to get discouraged when you read the newspaper sometimes, but I know deep within my heart that God will save America as we do our part. These men and women did their part back then to establish the land. And as, as we do our part today, he will heal, he will, will preserve this land in our generation until he comes. And what is our part? Uh, hopefully you can begin to get good at reeling off. What, what is our part? Well, our part is to turn to him, not look to government, not to programs or the president of the United States. We look to God for our solutions, our deliverance, our healing. And then we take our children and we teach them to look to God. Let's see that next slide. So this Sunday, my little freshman in high school, she's 15 years old, once a month in her little youth church group in Young Women's, she, um, one of the young girls teach the lesson to the girls in their little Bible study. And so I took a little picture. She set up her little room and put the little scriptures on the board. And, and the topic was how the young men and young women in the church can work together to be a part of building God's kingdom. And and I could tell after she had um, got her the lesson together and came home and told me how it went. She felt so good inside. And she actually said that uh, some of the little questions she asked uh, her peers, one of the little gals started to weep because she was touched by, you know, the spirit of, of what she had done recently to make a difference in the world. And, and so this is what we want to do. We want our kids, we want our grandchildren to be a part of a community of like-minded, believing young people so that their identity in Christ as a son and daughter of God can be entrenched deep within them for the battles that surely they are going to have to fight and be on the front lines for. And then um, we make quality family time. Let's see that next slide, a high priority. Uh, my little girl had didn't have school on Monday, so... We could have just slept in and had a lazy day, but we went on down. We have a little family ancestral home over a hundred years ago. Uh, my husband's family were able to secure 75 acres. Now that was no small thing for a, a black man to um, own 75 acres deep in the country about an hour and a half outside of DC. So we're proud. It just looks like this humble little home, but inside we've renovated it. It's new, but we go down there and we feel the spirit of our ancestors. And then the next day in Richmond, Virginia, our church has built a, a temple. And so we went through and we toured the open house and the governor of Virginia just had been there on Saturday and he had come out. I saw in an article how beautiful the spirit of God was and he was going to bring his wife back and recommend all his staff attend you know this building but this is uh, number two so we, we take our children to God and then we make quality family time a high priority and I thought okay this was this was a good this was a quality uh, experience we had with this child she's the only one left at home we have five kids four other kids but what I did do is in the family devotional text devotional that I send out to my grown kids that are out of the house adult children they saw pictures of you know little Marie teaching her little lesson and then going to the family home and going to the open house temple and so these are all a part of teaching your children to go to God and teaching them the word and then making family time opportunities a high priority. And then number three, we continue to learn and study. And girls, I know you are a part of the 3% that would have fought on the side of you know independence during the Revolutionary War because you are here today fighting through education, trying to educate and learn these stories and these miracles so you can go home and teach your children, your husband, uh, you know, the people in your circle of influence. Let's see that next slide. I'm not sure what I have there. Okay, that's the last slide. As you come and learn, oh, this is the last slide. So this was just last night. I'm sorry, boy, you're really seeing Jackson's up close in front today. I mean, here, this was on our bed. This is what family devotional looked like last night. Daddy uh, and Marie, we just on the bed and she's 15. So we just opened straight up scripture and we uh, read out of uh, the, how 
Peter walked on water and then how he you doubted and began to sink. And the minute he called out to God, Jesus was right there and pulled him right up. And we talked about the minute we are beginning to doubt in our life, you, you shout out to the Lord. He is right there. He will pull you up. And so that was our devotional last night. So as you do these things, mamas, you will know what to do. The last thing as you go to God, as you make, keep your family close in whatever way you can. And, and I will, I will, we're going to get ready to start these 12 cottage meeting lessons in April in the evening time at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we, I just break down, how do we teach the Bible to little kids? How do we, you know, how do we teach them to have a foundation of faith and, 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 and these kind of things? And so if you're wondering, well, how, how, what does that look like? How, how do I do this? We'll just break it down in these 12 beautiful classes. And then lastly, the four points to keep us anchored in hope is to do something. As we're doing these three things, God, keeping our family close, learning and studying. As we pray, God will put on our hearts what we need to do. Maybe we just need to make changes within the four walls of our home or with our marriage. Maybe there's something we can do in the communities, meetings we can attend, offices we can run uh, for, or good candidates we can support. God will put it on our heart what we can do. And enough of us doing something will justify the heavens to intervene and um, to heal this land. We know this is the promise. So anyways, that is the end of our class today. I'm going to turn it back to Z for announcements. Thank you, Z.